the kids didn't sing in the first service, so that was quite a blessing. I thought that was, wasn't it though? I saw everybody taking pictures, even those who didn't have kids singing up here were taking pictures, that's wonderful. But for those of us who have older children, you kind of look at them and you remember the innocence of when your children were that age. I remember when uh, I thought my son Josh, who's now 20, was going to be a great baseball player. Dad went to see him and uh, he was out there in center field and a shot came out to him in center field and he was over there picking flowers. And I was like, I love you anyway, buddy. That's what I thought to myself. But I don't know about you, but I've been getting a lot more sentimental. As John, you can pray for me as I reach the ages that apparently need prayer more than others. You can add me to that list. But I actually, I was telling my wife, I actually cried while I was sitting at my desk this week. And I'll tell you why, because it relates to the children to some degree. You know, you, you look at that innocence and that, and you look at the world today and you think of how much innocence we lose as we grow older and you wish you could keep the children in their little bubble. And when I was uh, raising the boys, I'm sorry, I'm actually getting a little sentimental talking about it to you now, but I was, when I raised the boys, my wife helped, please. Don't, I'm talking from a father's perspective. My wife did more work than I'll ever understand and know, but I always said, I want to be a great father. So I had a plan. Every Saturday, we were going to have daddy's day out where you know, I'd give my wife a break and I would spend every Saturday with my boys. And I did that. And I would still do it today if they wanted to spend Saturdays with dad, but they have other things to do because the innocence is gone, right? So I was sitting at my desk and my screensaver popped up. And this picture of Josh on a daddy's day out popped up on the screen. And he, was, he must have been about five. And Josh was a hot dog. I mean, when, when you would say to Josh, it's time for a picture, he would do, he'd go like this. And he'd put, he would put his arm around his brother and he'd make this big cheesy smile. And I got to tell you, when I saw that picture, literally, I, I, I could not help but, but tear up. I, I teared up. Because I was like, oh, I wish I could just go back and, as my wife said to me before, just hug that little five-year-old boy and tell him I love him just as much today as I did then. I just wish I could put that in a bottle. But then, and I know this is corny, I know this is corny, church, but I thought, I wonder if a screensaver of me ever pops up on God's computer. And he remembers when I was innocent, when I was young, when I first came to him and my whole world was the father and his son. So that's the corny part of today's message. But it's Passion Week. It's Passion Week, church. First service, we didn't have all the palms. I thought that was great and the children singing. But what does Passion Week mean? It's, it's a misnomer almost. What does the word passion mean? Why do we call it the Passion Week? Well, the word passion comes from the Latin and it means suffering. It means suffering. It's the week that our Lord suffered. So ladies, if anybody asks you if you have a fully passionate marriage, you can answer and say, yes, my, my marriage is full of passion. Full of passion. There, all right. I'll be here all week, folks. So it's the, it's the passion of the Christ. But when we think of the triumphal entry church, you know, when I was raised, when I was young, we used to watch all the movies of, of Jesus Christ last week, Jesus of Nazareth, the greatest story ever told, Charlton Heston coming in as Jesus. But when you remember those stories of the triumphal entry, as the young children portrayed, we think of a festive time with, with palm branches and hosannas and, and joyous raucousness. It's a, it's a celebration. But the truth of it is, church, 
If you were to look at Jesus Christ as he approached Jerusalem during Passion Week, you would see a mixture of joy, but you would see a heavy dose in his eyes of sadness and sorrow and suffering because that's when his suffering started that week, when he entered Jerusalem. My hope this morning is not to bring you down, but it's to show you why the Passion Week started with great sorrow and sadness, even at the triumphal entry. So if you would, just pray with me. Lord, we thank you for Easter. We thank you for your resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that the week of passion, that the week of suffering didn't stop there, Lord, but it ended with you gloriously being resurrected on the third day and bringing life to those you love. Father, as we walk through the scripture this morning, as we look at the last week of your life again today, as we look at the triumphal entry, Lord, let us examine our hearts and our minds to see what you have for us today. Well, a little bit more about myself. I grew up in South Philadelphia in the early 70s. I was born there in the late 60s. Grew up there in the first part of the 70s. And if anybody here from South Philadelphia, anybody, anybody? Oh, all right. Francis, Center City. That is not South Philadelphia, Francis, but I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. I'll give you the couple miles there. Because Francis, if you were from South Philadelphia, people in the 70s would have thought one of two things about you, or probably both. First thing they would think is you were either in the mob or you knew somebody who was part of the mob. Because you were Italian. You lived in South Philadelphia, you were Italian. It was Little Italy. The second thing people would assume about you is that you were Roman Catholic. If you were in South Philadelphia and you were an Italian, you were a Catholic. Now my parents didn't really go to church, but they honored Catholicism. They honored, you know, when the priests would come to the door and the, the sisters would come and ask for money and donations. You know, yes, of course we're, of course we're Catholic, Father. We just, you know, they were, they were wedding and funeral Catholics. Seriously, that's, they didn't attend much. But if you were to ask my parents, do you believe in Jesus? They would have said, yes. If you were to ask my parents, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? They would have said, yes. If you were to ask them, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation? They would have said, yes, absolutely. Were they believers? No. Roman Catholic, having been one, having had a ministry to Roman Catholics, believe that you're saved by Jesus plus. Jesus plus works. Jesus plus works. So if you were to ask my dad today, who still would claim to be a Catholic, even though he has not darkened the door of a Catholic church in 60 years, he would tell you, I'm going to heaven. Why? Because I'm a good person. That's what he would tell you. So is he a believer? If you were to write a book about my family, you would say that John's mother and father, they were believers in Jesus Christ. But church, would they have been believers in Jesus Christ? That's just a little bit of a word inflection there. Believers or not believers? So we come to the triumphal entry. And I want to point this out to you because in the scriptures, especially the gospels, Jesus refers to people who do not commit to him in their hearts as believers, even though he knows they are not believers. And you will see what I mean as we go through the scripture this morning. Jesus talks to those people who assume they're believers as though they are believers, and he challenges them. 
He challenges their belief. Because church, it's what we call intellectual assent. We all know what that is? Intellectual assent means that we can acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Son of God, but still miss who he really is. We can follow him, we can shout Hosanna all we want to the top of our lungs, but we can still be worshiping the wrong Jesus Christ. So let's go on a little journey this morning, church. What I want to do is look at the triumphal entry in all four Gospels, because it is in all four Gospels. And I want to show you something that either happens before or immediately after the triumphal entry or during that will enlighten what I'm trying to communicate to you this morning. And you can go to your Bibles. These are right there. I'm not, I'm not patching verses together to make a point. But let's start so I can show you what I'm talking about. So we're in John chapter 12, which is where we would be anyway. John chapter 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast of Passover, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna, church, means save now. So they were shouting at the top of their lungs, save now, he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, interesting thing here, church. This was Passover in Jerusalem. Everybody comes to Jerusalem for Passover. It's where they bring their lambs with them for the sacrifice. Jerusalem at this period of time, during this ceremony, this celebration, this feast, would swell to about 2.5 million people. So we're not talking about a little town here. You're talking about a city swelling to 2.5 million people. Now, church, what would these people who are coming to celebrate Passover bring with them? They would bring lambs for the family sacrifice. For the Passover sacrifice, they would sacrifice the lamb, then they would eat the lamb at their Passover meal. So picture this, church. You have hundreds of thousands of people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Most of them don't even know who this Jesus is, to be honest with you. They're getting caught up in the crowd. But here's Jesus going toward Jerusalem on this road where they're waving palm branches and putting down their cloaks, and he's riding on a young donkey, a colt, and he's surrounded by other people going to Jerusalem with their lambs. So here you have the Lamb of God, traveling to Jerusalem, among all the other lambs. Why are those lambs going to Jerusalem? Because they're going to be slaughtered. Why is Jesus going to Jerusalem? Because he's going to be slaughtered. Does he know that? Absolutely. He said, this is my hour. I'm going to Jerusalem. And there they will lift me up. They will crucify me. So that's the picture, church. These things his disciples did not understand at first. The disciples didn't have a whole picture of what was going on. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. So he's coming from Bethany. 
He raised Lazarus from the dead. He's headed towards Jerusalem. And all the people in Bethany who were moved by this miracle are following Jesus to Jerusalem. And they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And more and more people are coming together. Oh, who's this? Who's this? This is the Jesus who rose Lazarus from the dead. And more and more people are coming. Word had already got to Jerusalem that this Jesus who raised the dead was coming. And they all start to follow him and praise him. For this reason, the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed a sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, listen to what the Pharisees say. You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So we're two Pharisees standing there. And I say, you see, you're not doing any good. Well, what do you think? The Pharisees are starting to argue among themselves. You see, you're idiots. Look at this man. We were trying to keep him down. We were trying to keep him from being worshipped. We were trying to keep him from being heard. But now look, the whole world is praising him, crying out to Jesus, save now. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed your report and to whom the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes. Now hop down to 42. Nevertheless, many, even the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Church, read that. Many were believing in him, but they were not confessing him because they feared being put out of the synagogue. They loved the approval of man more than the approval of God. Are these saved individuals, church? I would say to you, probably not. If you're not willing to confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth and believe in him with your heart, I would say you're probably not Truly a believer, I would say they are intellectually saying, yes, this Jesus is wonderful. He raises the dead. But they wanted approval from men. They would cry out Hosanna because everybody else was crying out Hosanna. But they wouldn't cry out, save me, Lord, save me. Die for me. Take away my sins. They were saying something else. Another account of the triumphal entry in Matthew. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. Now, why was there a donkey and a colt in Matthew's tale, Matthew's telling of the story? Well, Jesus was on the young, I call it baby. It wasn't a baby, but it was a young colt. There was a mother, right? Now, this young colt was not broken, so if you have a young, unbroken cult that has never been ridden, you might want to have the mother lead the cult. Why is that, church? To keep the cult calm. The cult will follow the mother. So Matthew points out that the mother was with them, and Jesus was on the cult. But why on earth did Jesus come on a donkey? The Bible tells us that victorious king's church comes on, a victorious king comes on a white horse, not a donkey. The Old Testament tells us that if you come on a donkey, you're offering peace. That's a peace offering. You come in humility. You don't come as a conquering warrior on a horse. You come on a donkey. What was Jesus offering, church? He was offering peace, but not with the Romans. 
He was offering peace with God, wasn't he? And he was doing it in the most humble fashion that he possibly could, on a donkey, on a young donkey. Here I am, Israel. Here I am. I'm your savior. Savior, accept me as your savior. But they didn't see him as the savior of their souls. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, save now to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The whole crowd was stirred up saying, Hosanna. But church, they were also saying at the same time, we're crying out, Hosanna, save us. And they're also saying, well, who is this that we're shouting for? Who is this that we're crying out for? Well, this is the prophet Jesus. Folks, was he a prophet? Yes, he was. But did it stop there? No, it didn't stop there. He was a prophet, a priest, a king, a savior. They had to acknowledge that he was a savior. But most of them in this crowd had no idea that this was how the savior Messiah would come. They thought he was here to throw off the fetters of Rome. They thought he was here to declare victory and say, Rome, your days are done. But he came on a donkey as a man of peace saying, I'm here to reconcile you, Israel, to my God. You, church, to my God. Behold, I come humbly. I will come one day on a white horse. I will. And Jesus Entered. Now, this is what he did right after the triumphal entry. So look what I'm talking about. The triumphal entry, and this is what he does. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a house of robbers. These very people who were praising him on Sunday would be yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him on Friday. Savior, he's their savior from Rome on Sunday, but on Friday, they will be crying out, crucify him, because at their heart, they are thieves and liars. When he went into the temple, among all the shouting, among all the clamoring, he turned over those tables because he was so disgusted. Where's the innocence you had, Israel, on daddy's day out? You've lost it. You've exchanged my love for you, for riches, for your own image of who I might be and what I might do for you. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and, the, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Church, they saw him heal the lame and the blind right in front of them. They knew he had resurrected the dead. And instead of saying, this is it, this is the one, this is the savior, we've been under a false belief for years that he would come to fight Rome. He's coming on a donkey. He's coming to bring peace. Instead, they were indignant. How dare you heal the lame and give sight to the blind and raise the dead? How dare you? This is our church. This is our world, and you're not fitting the mold of our Savior. Ah, that's not good. Mark 11, the account of the triumphal entry. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village 
in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, in which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those that were standing there said to them, why are you doing this, untying the colt? And they told him that Jesus had said, and they let it go. They let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that had been cut from the fields. And those who went before him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The majority of the crowd church, even though it seems like they're celebrating the coming of their savior, are not believing. Well, how do we know that, John? On the following day, after he did his triumphal entry, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. A lot of people are confused by this. Well, Lord, why would you curse a fig tree that didn't bear fruit because it wasn't the season for fig trees to bear fruit? Well, church, it was because it wasn't the season for fig trees to start bearing leaves either. But the Lord said, you're bearing leaves, fig tree, so let me go over and see if the life that you have in you, if the life that you are sprouting is bearing the fruit of figs. Why? Why is he doing that? And why did he curse the church? Because the fig tree is a symbol of Israel. Israel. Hosea 9.10, when I found Israel, says God, it was like finding grapes in the desert. It was a blessing. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. But what's it like now? But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. So church, after the triumphal entry, Jesus brought his disciples to this fig tree that looked like it was bearing fruit. But when they examined it closer, this green fig tree had no fruit. It's Israel, church. Israel was saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. We love you, prophet Jesus. We love you, King Jesus. We love you, Jesus, who will throw off the fetters of Rome. But there was no fruit because their belief was not in the Savior Jesus who came on the donkey to offer peace between God and man. The account in Luke, this is the last account, church, bear with me. This is important. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, Already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now, church, we have to remember that the 12 were disciples, but others were described as his disciples. Hundreds were described as his disciples. Jesus didn't just contain his disciples to the 12. They were the closest. But so when it says disciples here, remember, he's talking about the wider body. 
With a loud voice, they proclaimed the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones themselves would cry out. Well, isn't that because Jesus is thinking this is a great thing that he's responding that way to the Pharisees, that the rocks themselves would cry out if Israel was silent? There is joy in the fulfillment of this prophecy, church, that Jesus recognizes. Jesus says, God says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy would be fulfilled whether Israel shouted in unbelief or belief if they were silent. This prophecy would be fulfilled because God would make the rocks themselves praise Jesus Christ. Because this prophecy had to be fulfilled. Remember, church, Jesus was crucified from the foundation of the earth. Nothing could change it. Nothing could change it. Whether Israel believed or not, but we know Israel did not believe. Church, here's what happened when Jesus was on his way in the Gospel of Luke to the triumphal entry. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace between God and man. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. As Jesus was approaching his triumphal entry, approaching the city of Jerusalem, the road elevates and he looks over and he sees the city of Jerusalem and he weeps. Would that you, even you, had known that this day the things that make peace, but they are hidden from you. But John, they were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. The word for wept here is convulsing. It's not like when I wept in my office this week and a little tear formed in my eye. This is funeral type of convulsing. This is weeping vigorously. When Jesus saw the condition of Jerusalem and what kind of entry he would receive by the majority of Israel, he wept, church. He wept bitterly. He wept with literal heaves of his body because this is the church. This is the body. This is Israel. This is the people. These are the people that he loved and loves, and he wants no one to perish, church, but as he approaches them and he hears the hosannas, you can't help but know that he hears the echoes of crucify him, crucify him, crucify him in his ears because those echoes are not far away. It's just a few days. He wept. There was another time, church, when Jesus wept. That was your memory verse three weeks ago, remember? Gospel of John, Jesus wept. There's a third time Hebrews 5, where Jesus weeps. And that's in the garden. The author of Hebrews makes reference to his weeping in the garden. But the other two times, this time and the time when he rose Lazarus from the dead, are two times when I submit to you, church, that Jesus wept because the unbelief of the people who should have recognized him, of the people he wanted to acknowledge him as Savior. Both occasions, he was saddened and cried because of the lack of faith. 
Let's look at this in Luke. When Mary had said this, she went and called her, when Martha had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Why was he there at church? Why did he delay? We all know the story. Pastor John taught it to us. They delayed, Jesus delayed because he wanted Lazarus to die. Why, church? Because that would be his final public miracle. He wanted to resurrect him. It was the capstone of his public ministry. He wanted to resurrect Lazarus. He wanted him to die. So why on earth would Jesus be sad that his friend Lazarus died? Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He was troubled by her statement. Her statement was, if you were here, my brother would not have died. Do you remember what the centurion said? No greater faith had Jesus found in Israel than the centurion who said, Lord, I know you can heal from a de- You can heal from anywhere. You're God. You can say to my servant, rise. You can say to my daughter, rise. And I know that it will be done because you are the son of God. But here, here these Israelites said, oh Lord, if you had been here earlier, you could have saved my brother. And Jesus was greatly troubled by that statement. Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Come and see. Jesus wept. And Jesus said, see how he loved him? They thought he was weeping because he loved Lazarus, which he did. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept him from dying? They doubted him. They doubted him. They doubted this Christ who were there asking to heal Lazarus from sickness. They doubted that he could raise him from the dead. Couldn't couldn't he have saved this man? It's too late now. Then Jesus was deeply moved again by that statement. He came to the tomb It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He's hurt by their lack of faith. He's hurt by their lack of understanding who he is. Did he love Lazarus and hate to see death and decay in the world? Absolutely. But the Bible clearly tells us as he looked over Jerusalem, as he listened to the people there questioning his ability to raise the dead, he was hurt because they did not believe that he was God. We have to move fast here, church. I'm going to skip some things. I just want to point out something to you. Read it at home, John chapter 8. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John chapter eight, verse 31. He says to them, to the Jews who believed in him. But listen, he's talking to the same people. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your father. Who is their father? The devil. He said this to Jews who believed. They didn't believe like they had to believe. They believed in a God that they created. 
They believed in the Messiah that was to their liking. And Jesus is pointing that out. Hey, you people think you're believers? If you were believers, you would do the things I'm telling you to do. But I'm telling you, even though you think you're believers, you are doing the works of your father and you will crucify the very one who's come to save you. Church, we read about this in the parable of the seed and the sowers. So this isn't anything new that some people believe and really don't believe. That's not a true, te- that's not a, a new teaching, is it, church? Jesus, when he gave the interpretation of the parable of the seed and the sower, said, now this, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, And these have no firm root. They believe for a while, church. And in a time of temptation, they fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. So with that church, my question for us this morning, as we approach the resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection, what type of soil are we church? Were you that saved individual, or that we don't believe you can lose your salvation. So listen to what I'm saying, and I'll try to be clear. Were you that person who never committed your soul to Jesus Christ? You waved palm branches. Every Sunday morning, you waved palm branches saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. But the rest of the week, you could care less about God. Are you that person who never truly receive saving faith, but you say, I believe in Jesus like my father says he believed in Jesus. You say the right words. You wear the right clothes. You go to the right places. But he's not in your heart. He hasn't taken hold of your soul. Are you one who's let riches and the things of this world prevent you from being that fertile soil that God can rest in? Or are you one who's always looking to build your kingdom here and you can never let him in? That's my question for you this morning, church. Are you just a palm branch waver? Are you one of the minority who were yelling Hosanna, who truly believed in Christ and his salvation? Are you that unfertile soil who always yells, Hosanna, Hosanna, but never commits. Think about that, church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your resurrection. We thank you for your life. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for coming in peace. We thank you, Lord, that through your shed blood, through your righteously lived life, we can stand before you without shame, without sin, because you have imparted your righteousness to us. And it is on that righteousness alone that we stand. Not one work that we do will add to our salvation. 
Not one. The only work that we believe in is your finished work on the cross. And Lord, if there's one here today who wants to stop waving palm branches and who wants to be that soil that you can, you can grow roots in, Lord, I pray that you would impress upon them today that today is the day of salvation. And they can have a blessed resurrection Sunday, Lord, because they know they'll be resurrected with you. I pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.